You're listening to Cam's Talk, a podcast brought to you by the service users and professionals from East London NHS Foundation Trust. A podcast where you can hear us discuss, debate and challenge issues around child and adolescent mental health in the UK. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Cam's Talk. Today we'll be having a bit of a discussion about autism in females and those assigned female at birth. So for a really long time it was assumed that autism only existed in males and those assigned males at birth. But we have come to know that the assessment was heavily focused on male orientated symptoms. So females actually present a bit differently. So we thought it would be a good idea to highlight this today. But before we get into that, it'll be good to give an introduction to everyone that's on the podcast today. Um, And when we do go out around in our introduction, I thought it would be a good idea to say what autism means to you. I'm sure you've heard the saying that once you've met one person with autism, you've only met one person with autism, which is so true. You know, it, it presents differently in loads of different people and you're going to get different symptoms and different experiences. So I thought it would be nice to have everyone share what autism means to them when they introduce themselves. So we will start with our new co-host, Kim, who has recently joined the team. Thanks, Marianne. Hi, I'm Kim. I'm a peer support champion in the people participation team, and I'm also a person with autism. For me, autism is a reminder to be gentle with myself, and it's a reason I can understand why I might get more overwhelmed than others, why I do things slightly differently. Thanks, Kim. It's so great to have you join the team as well and be part of this podcast. Um, Next, we'll go to Maddie. Hi, I'm Maddie. I'd say that autism means to me, I'd say that it allows me to understand and bond with people in a different way that other people aren't able to do. And the perspective it gives me is completely unique and it gives me that strength that not a lot of other people have. That's great, Maddie. Thank you. And next we have Sam. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sam. I feel it is a connected way of processing information in terms of how my brain perceives the information both visually and auditory. For example, learning in a visual environment helps to break down information in a more easier way. If I become too overstimulated, it becomes overwhelming. Therefore, having access to what is manageable is ideal, e.g. step-by-step activities, having breaks and a change of environment to regather. Thank you, Sam. That was such a comprehensive description and hopefully it offers a bit more of understanding to everyone listening today. Thank you. And then we've got Zoe as well. Hi, I'm Zoe. And to me, autism is about being brave and courageous as we are facing and overcoming challenges daily. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Zoe. And lastly, we've actually got Tyrone and Freya joining us um, from the Mental Health Schools team. Did you both want to introduce yourself and maybe just give a bit of a intro to what you do in the schools teams and your definition of autism? Yeah, sure. My name is Tyrone. I am one of the counter practitioners in the MHST. So when we look at autism as a, as a team and our practice, we work with young people of school age who perhaps present with low mood and and early signs of anxiety. So within that, we work with a lot of young people who may have an ASC diagnosis 
or perhaps on the pathway to getting their diagnosis. So as practitioners, we need to be aware of perhaps, you know, some of the things that they may struggle with. And I've got the NHS England definition, what some autistic people may find difficult. So they may find it hard to communicate and interact with other people. They may find it hard to understand how other people think or feel. I find that they might struggle with light sensitivity or um, auditory sensitivity. So they might find that stressful or uncomfortable. They might feel anxious or upset around unfamiliar situations or social events or take longer to kind of process information. That's the, the definition that the NHS England use. However, I like to look at it from a different way in terms of when working directly with uh, young people, it is being aware that there are some differences. But one thing that it means to me is actually they see things or experience things in a slightly different way than everybody else. And I, and I, and I like to highlight that and see in what ways you know, our service can adapt and support those people to access the right level of support. But I'm Freya. I am one of the education mental health practitioners in the team. As Tyrone was saying, we do have some very high percentage of our caseload um, of children with autism. So a large part of our role is to, you know, look into ways of how we can support that. Children with anxiety, low mood, how we can make adaptations um, just to make sort of the therapy that we do really sort of accessible to those young people. For me, when I think of autism, I had a young person with autism say to me once that they feel like it's like their superpower. So I feel like I think of autism, that that really sticks in my head that it is actually, obviously there is a lot of important things to talk about with the struggles that come up and how that can be supported. But I think that's just a really nice, positive way of thinking about it as well, that there are, are lots of good things too. Thank you both. And it's so great to have the mental health school team perspective as well to kind of join the young people on the podcast today. So thank you. I think the first thing we really wanted to address was common misconceptions, autism in females, because I think there are quite a few misconceptions, but also to kind of clear that up right at the beginning of the podcast, because a lot of these things kind of stick with you in your mind, but to break those down and clarify those for people that might not be too sure might be a good way to start. So Maddie, did you want to go first to talk about some of the common misconceptions? Yeah, I would just say a bit about misconceptions and stereotypes. A lot of the time when I tell people I have autism, the most common reaction is confusion. They're almost always shocked and they say, oh really, I never thought you were. Are you sure? But you're great at communicating. And this is a misconception that stems from stereotypes. A lot of the misconceptions is that people with autism don't have friends or a social life. They don't have communication skills. They're not independent. They're almost always quiet and not confident. And one of the biggest stereotypes is that only and mostly autistic people are boys. That's a lot of the misconceptions that I and a lot of other people deal with. And when I was in school and I was eight years old, my school report said that I was always having temper tantrums when I didn't get my own way. And this is just another thing that I dealt with. And in reality, that was a meltdown. So that's another misconception. And if that happened with a boy, they may have seen me as a girl and thought, oh, that doesn't link. When actually, if they took more time to do that, that would have been a lot more helpful. But yeah, those are a lot of the misconceptions that are quite difficult to deal with. Thanks for sharing that, Maddie. And yeah, that doesn't sound very pleasant either um, to go through that. So it's really important that we're having this conversation today to break down those misconceptions. And Sam, I wonder if you have like any similar or different misconceptions that you faced in your life? Yeah, I agree with Maddie. 
So autism can be cured as a misconception, as it is a lifelong condition. The word cure can be seen as a disease that needs to be cured, which can be misleading. It is not a disease, and in fact, it is a long-term developmental and neurological pathway. The journey is one of learning, discovery, and embracing humor. Getting the support from the beginning is key in order to sustain a good well-being. Support could be from family, education, the community and other services. Thank you, Sam. I was wondering if Tyrone or Freya, you have anything to add from the school's team perspective about how females with autism are supported um, with their education, along with these misconceptions that are so common in society? It's a difficult one in schools because I think a lot of the responses from females with autism can be very misconstrued in schools. What Maddie was saying about kind of meltdowns or sensory overloads and things like that, teachers might just not be trained enough to to notice when, when someone is going through that. And it can be perceived as defiance in school of not wanting to do PE because the element of getting changed or not liking how the clothes feel. And that can result in you know, children getting in trouble, children getting detentions or not wanting to be in certain environments within the school because of the loud noises or because it makes them uncomfortable. Definitely just a lot more sort of educating around teachers sort of looking out for those signs and symptoms so that those unfair situations can be avoided. I can imagine how frustrating it may seem, you know, if you're seen as a distraction or easily distracted, but you really just need that support which is not in place, so it can be quite frustrating. Tyrone, did you have anything to add to that? And I think it's the misconception of just because they're getting on fine in school with the schoolwork, it doesn't mean actually there are not other things that they might need support with. And often I think everything is kind of seen as, oh, they're fine right now. But actually, you know, looking at, you know, the journey of the young person, it's, it's difficult to kind of know the right time of when support is needed and often at times it's then noticed too late you know the opportunities at point you know when they're in year four or year six or it's only when you get to year 10 or 11 and you you then might feel kind of the additional exam stress that it then becomes present to members of staff that they need further support you know when children with autism seem fine in school but they're not at home um so that kind of trying to get that balance of how we can support them when when school actually aren't really seeing it because we know a lot of children and young people can really mask those things at school so I think that's something we continually try and work on with schools of how can we still support that child even if those signs aren't seen at all in school but you know they are at home or that child is sort of just masking or working really hard to to cover it up. So it almost seems in schools that females with autism aren't even considered as as having autism as potentially a problem then? Yeah, definitely. It's really interesting that you bring up masking. I think that's definitely something that we need to focus on. I don't know if everyone really knows or understands exactly like how masking um, takes form, but I know I know that is definitely a very real experience for many of you. And I wonder if anyone wanted to share their experience about how they used to mask or how they still do and how it affects them. Maddie, did you want to go first? I describe masking as makeup. Others seem to like you when you wear it and you tend to get more attention and friends. You practice it every day till it's perfect. It starts in stages, starts with eyeshadow, mascara, eyeliner, lipstick. 
and then you add the foundation and it just becomes a part of your identity and removing it takes time and you have to take each individual part off until it comes off gradually and you're able to see the real you again my experience of masking I masked for six years and in those six years I gradually lost my identity and who I was at age 14 everything began to crumble and my mask began to fall the mask eventually fell off and I had absolutely no idea who I was anymore I had molded myself into the person that I believed everyone would like because I truly believed the real Maddie wasn't good enough. I didn't know how to act anymore. And when I looked in the mirror, I didn't recognise myself. I was so confused. I had had the mask on for so long that I didn't even realise it was there. So I never knew to take it off. That's such a beautiful analogy as well that you've just described. It makes it so, so real. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that as well. This is my definition of what I think masking is. The difficulty of diagnosing autism in females particularly includes trying to fit in and to be essentially be neurotypical. The masking your behaviour happens as it is a way of hiding your emotions and how you truly are. It is internal, not external. Therefore, it's harder to capture because one adapts their behaviour in order to fit in. And in my case, I think it led to burnout and neglecting my own needs. Eye contact can be very difficult, but you're still doing this to be socially accepted. The feelings of shame and embarrassment is another barrier towards diagnosis because you just want to be the same. I feel like if I'd got the help earlier, I don't think I would have gone through what I'd gone through. That's so powerful. And yeah, when you put it like that, it's just what a world of a difference it would make, wouldn't it, if you if you had received that help earlier. And we've got Zoe as well. I wonder if you wanted to share your experience of masking. Um, I had to mask every day at school as I felt that if I expressed my struggles, I would be viewed as weak and problematic. However, this did become a bad habit and I actually believed that I was happy and everything was fine. But when I got home, I had severe breakdowns and I wish I spoke about my problems earlier. Yeah, I definitely think that's something a lot of people can relate to, isn't it? It's just trying to kind of make other people feel at ease. And it's it's definitely you're going to be a lot healthier and happier without that mask. But it can be really hard to, you know, undo that when that's been your reality for so long. Thank you for sharing that, all of you. And I know Sam actually touched on diagnoses and, you know, whether you did receive it at a younger age or whether you received it at a late stage. I wonder if, Kim, you kind of wanted to start with that, because I know you have a bit of experience with getting your diagnosis a bit later. Yeah, so I actually didn't get my autism diagnosis till I was in my mid-20s. And so growing up through school, college, I functioned by being incredibly organised. I felt like if I wasn't on top of everything, I was failing at something because of the way that my autism needed that perfect score. And of course, then all my teachers and friends just saw me as an organised person rather than struggling under the surface with keeping up with everything. And not having my diagnosis earlier really meant that I wasn't aware what were symptoms and what were just parts of my personality for a long time. It's been a lot easier since I've had my diagnosis because I've been able to figure out what's me and what's me coping with just life in general. But I think for everyone who got their diagnosis a lot earlier, I would hope it's been a lot easier for them being able to get more assistance. Yeah, I got my diagnosis when I was 16. Um, and I wish that I'd been diagnosed earlier and that I'd been able to receive the support. 
I was my teachers when I was seven and eight years old when I had that meltdown had been given the training to recognize signs of autism and that would have meant that my school experience would have been a lot smoother wouldn't have taken my struggles away it wouldn't have but it would have enabled me to have less struggles because the support would have been there to prevent any decline in things like mental health and stuff exactly I think raising awareness of signs of autism would have been a a great help for, for both of us Sam my ASD pathway for my diagnosis so I got my diagnosis when I was 16 So it was delayed for one year due to the COVID pandemic, and I think that had a huge toll on waiting lists. It affected me as it was harder to understand myself. Now having the diagnosis has helped to accept and review myself in a deeper way. Thanks for that, Sam. I'd say I kind of relate to Sam a bit, but in a different way. Instead of my diagnosis taking years, mine was done within a few weeks, and that was quite difficult because although I didn't have to wait a long time. It came so quick that I didn't know what to do. And for the last two years or so, I've been trying to understand and learn through myself and my experiences, how it actually affects me. So instead of having it be a long time and thinking about it a lot, it happened so quick, I didn't have time to think about it. So that's two perspectives on it as well. It's really bizarre how we can all have such different experiences with the same thing. Because by the sounds of it, Maddie, it seemed like your diagnosis wasn't exactly what you were looking for. But I'd started recognising traits in myself based on what I knew autism to be and sort mine out. Zoe, do you have any thoughts on this at all? I got diagnosed in between my transition from primary school to high school. I, I wish I was diagnosed earlier as I had no support at primary school and I was just seen as shy. I also experienced a lot of daily struggles that my peers weren't aware about. Thanks for that, Zoe. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with that, because I know it can be a little difficult to relive that, especially if you had a difficult diagnosis process. And and with Maddie, like it happening so quickly and you're almost left with no support after, it can be a little challenging, but, you know, you've done a great job. And I was wondering, actually, you know how Tyrone and Freya, you both go into schools and speak to young people there are times when you pick up on ASC. So ASC stands for Autism Spectrum Condition. But yeah, um, you might pick up on ASC traits in young people at the schools you go to and the young people you work with. Um, Do you think it's important to share that with schools before young people get a diagnosis? We've been working with our schools now for about a year and a half. So it's been it's been a journey. But we also got to just like, you know, be aware of actually where schools are at as well with, with their knowledge and skills. But yeah, so when we get a young person, then we do suspect, you know, there may be some some uh, ASC traits. We have that conversation um, with our link worker with the school to explore actually whether it's something they've noticed or if they're um, looking at or, or assessing or observing. And if that isn't, then we perhaps have a further conversation about what school can do next steps. But also, you know, we work with young people who are in between that process of waiting for an assessment. And again, we offer advice for schools in terms of making reasonable adjustments, as well as getting them to look at and review what they have in place already. We offer support for young people who are diagnosed. For us, it's about understanding are some of their difficulties down to the ASC or is it other contextual difficulties as well as we know you know for a lot of young people that have come through to our service school itself can be a trigger or a difficulty working with not only the young person but the school and the family network as well to support them to uh, get the support that they need 
Absolutely. So it's like an all-rounded approach that you take, which is quite reaffirming to hear. I wonder from Maddie and Sam or Zoe, any of your perspective, uh, what you think about that question, whether you think it's important for schools to know ASC traits? I guess to a certain extent it is contextual, but... I think it really revolves around the student. Sometimes the student won't want the school to know, and that's just their personal choice. But it is important to speak to the student. But I think it can be helpful for the school to know and also for the school to start looking for signs, especially if the school hasn't seen any signs themselves. Because like we said before, masking can be quite prominent in school. So, yeah, it does depend on the student. I think it can be important to some and not important to others. I think it is helpful if schools have training on ASC traits, as this opens a platform to help with diagnosis. Survey conducted by tests, including Times Educational Supplement, indicates that most teachers feel a lack of training is affecting how they support autistic pupils. For example, moving a pupil to the front of the class could make them feel uneasy and could affect learning and processing. And some teachers would not understand this due to the lack of training. In some cases, it can be seen as detrimental if schools make it too obvious as to make the people feel uncomfortable or if they lack knowledge in autistic traits. This needs to be addressed more in terms of knowledge to help raise awareness. Amy Swain has released a short film identifying how to spot signs of autism in pupils. She was diagnosed with autism and and shares her experiences on Instagram to help other young people. Thanks, Sam, for sharing that. That was actually a really helpful resource you threw in there as well. So thank you for sharing that. And you highlighted a really, really important point there about uh, training and education teachers as well. I know Maddie is actually currently working on some training in schools to give to teaching assistants, but also to teachers around autism, how to better support students in schools. It just comes from a different perspective when it comes from the young person, like you've just highlighted challenges that you might have that Freya or Tyrone may not know necessarily about unless you had highlighted that to them so yeah it's great that you brought that up and I wonder Maddie if you wanted to kind of speak a little on that. The teaching assistants that we've delivered the training to found it especially helpful because the person who I was working with would provide the, the details and more of the professional side and then after speaking about masking from their perspective as a professional I would then speak about it from my perspective as an individual who is dealing with that so it balanced really well I have several bad experiences of the way I've been treated with autism and things revolving around that. So I just really like to give some of my bad experiences to turn it into positives for other students that might be in a similar position to what I was in. So they can, I can give the teaching assistants the right training so that they can support that person to prevent those bad experiences from potentially happening to that person as well. Absolutely. That collaboration is so important. And I'm so glad we have that here in this podcast as well with like our professionals, but also young young people that experience it. And, you know, sharing your negative and positive experiences, like you said, Maddie, it's it's so important to get like a full scope of really what, what you experience. And professional who doesn't experience that might not be able to explain it as well as you do because you can genuinely speak on what you've experienced. So thank you for sharing that. Thinking about some strategies, some of the ones that I would say helped would be having PowerPoints for my lessons printed out because I'm like a practical learner, a visual learner, and I struggle to see the PowerPoint. 
colour-coded cards helped me a lot to uh, dictate my feelings and show them to the TAs or teachers in the class. Um, having exam provisions like separate rooms, breaks, stuff like that might help if you speak to your school about that. Having a quiet room where if the class is too busy and noisy, that can help you take a break from the room. Uh, even being able to leave class five minutes early to miss the busy corridors. Having fidget toys. And also some schools are very strict on their school uniform. So having a thing where you can have your top button undone because that can make some people feel very claustrophobic. I was going to say, even now as an adult in my daily life, I have fidget toys abound. I'm very fond of the cubes, just things I can have in my pocket. People don't have to notice because they aren't always very visible. But I know quite a few schools have actually banned fidget toys after the the craze of fidget spinners and whatnot. Stimming is really helpful for focusing and for coping with emotional overloads. So I was wondering really what options are available now for young people in schools to stim with, really. This is something we, you know, we really try and help young people within schools, you know, whether they have a diagnosis or whether they're kind of in the middle of awaiting that diagnosis. Anything really that can help them to feel that little bit sort of stimulated in lessons. Um, So whether that is fidget toys, whether that's just having a short sensory break, going for a walk to the office to drop something off and then coming back, that type of thing. We really try and push that in schools to just allow them that sort of sensory break. And it's really, really important the students that are awaiting that diagnosis if they're you know, not really getting that support if they've not got an EHCP, things like that. They're just sort of very small things that we can put in place just to help them feel that little bit more comfortable in that environment. And and similar to what Maddie said, you know, it might just be sort of the position that they're sat with in the classroom. It might just be us asking schools, you know, when they sit this exam, would, would it be okay if they sat in their own room just so they're not around other people and don't get too overwhelmed? And just sort of teaching teachers, parents technique as well that they can use in schools. So um, we do sort of like breathing techniques that are really, really simple and easy. So if we can just sort of pass that on to the, the teaching assistants or, or the teachers, they can just do with them for a minute to calm them down, relax them, then we'll try that. So yeah, anything that we can do or, or pass on to the school to help, then we'll always try and suggest. That's really good to hear. Thank you. Anybody else have any thoughts? Some strategies or techniques you could use to help. So using specific visual cards, displaying if you're struggling and not for the person to take it personally. E.g. apologies, but I need time away to regather and refocus. Allowing individuals to have sensory breaks in order to regather and refocus as it can become very overwhelming and overstimulating. And having a sensory space that is available which can really help to recollect yourself. Uh, I was just going to speak about some things that helped me to cope. Having things planning, organising, knowing as many details as possible to be prepared and to have no unexpected events or people. So if I have something organised, I want to know who's there, where we're going, what time it is, uh, if it's going to be dark outside, if I need to arrange transport, if I'm going to have to be prepared to walk in the dark, um, who I'm going to be walking back, those sorts of stuff like that. I find it important to do things in stages. So example, when I started college, I'd practice walking there on my own. Then I'd walk there and then I'd meet my tutor and familiarise myself with the college building. And then I'd go back and meet my support people. Doing things in stages helps lessen anxiety as there are less unfamiliar events. So stuff like that helped me. And also using quotes is also a coping mechanism because you're thinking about them. So I think that's an important mechanism as well. Another difficulty is the physical education, which brings lots of other issues like sensory overload, change of clothing, sensitivity to smells and noise, lots of people in one area, and the whole process of dressing. 
A direct consequence of this is avoiding PE or being absent from school. In addition, having lots of information can be harder to process, so having it broken down can help. Having the access to therapy has made me more aware of my needs in terms of well-being and how important it is. If you have the option to do this, I would recommend it as it can help you to get to grips and know yourself better. Spending the time to relax and doing activities you enjoy is really crucial in order to maintain stability. For instance, I enjoy getting cosy on my weighted blanket and watching a film which really helps to ease my mind. The heaviness is especially helpful boosting your mood, is soothing and aids stress relief. That's great. Thank you. Thank you everyone for kind of sharing what helps you and strategies that support you. Maddie, did, did you have anything to add to that? I'm going to go on from what Sam said. Sam mentioned a really good point about using therapy as well. I think that's a really good way to say to people to reach out if you need support and stuff like that. I also agree with what they said about PE lessons, how bad weather can be difficult, getting changed quickly and in front of other people can make people's anxiety high. My anxiety would also become high as well because I couldn't play tennis, basketball or play catch well due to my dyspraxia and lack of coordination. And people would often be angry at me for this and I'd always be picked last in teams. When I didn't want to do PE, I was able as lazy and put the naughty kids and threatened with the punishment. This added to my meltdowns at the end of the day because I just have to kind of mask and deal with it, which is not something that people with autism should have to do definitely not a good response is it you know if you're struggling it's again that miscommunication that misconception of really understanding you know what your needs are and how you need to be supported and it just ends up being you know more challenging so I I wonder if Frey or Tyrone you kind of have anything to add in that how schools teams and teachers and people within the schools can support young people better I was just thinking everyone had said about techniques and how they can be best implemented in the classroom. Something that team, and especially for myself, I've been trying to support my schools with, is just identifying staff, people that can really get to know young people better. As there is a point of communication where actually when young people are struggling, it perhaps promotes them asking more if there isn't anyone, that ally, that support that they could perhaps go to for, or, or go to if they need anything but also give them an opportunity to share perhaps some of their difficulties and views honestly. I'm aware that that's an area that schools may struggle with just because of the demand that they have, number of students. But that's something that we do push for is, you know, schools really taking the time and creating that space for young people that need it. And we do that by, you know, role modeling that as a service, you know, taking the time to get to know them as a school. And, you know, we hope that they can do that with their young people. That's really good, really helpful. Thank you. And I think it's important to make everyone aware, especially for those that don't have autism, that sensory overloads and shutdowns and meltdowns are absolutely not a choice. It's something that happens automatically. We just get overloaded with information, with sights, smells, etc. Shutdowns are more of an internalization of experiences, whereas meltdowns might be what's presented more in the media with sort of crying, being loud. Does anyone else want to share their own experiences, Maddie? I actually um, spoke a bit about this on the presentation I did to the teaching assistants. I said about how my experience is actually all three at the same time. So I have a meltdown, which for me is, it's not loud, like a lot of stereotypical, like on the media, but mine is usually a meltdown um, and then a shutdown. 
So I'll go through the meltdown stage and I'll just shut down. I would, I'll kind of go nonverbal and I won't kind of speak at all. And that's actually an experience that isn't spoken about a lot because it's just kind of a way of me to help me decompress, just to like not speak and everything just goes silent in my brain and it allows me to kind of recharge a bit as well. But yeah, it's quite difficult and it's certainly not my choice, not anyone's choice. Um, I wish there was a lot more information about it on how to help people with that. Because like I said before, when I was having meltdowns when I was younger, it was looked at as a temper tantrum. And I'm sure the teachers would have said to me, oh, Maddie, just go down and sit in the naughty corner when actually what I needed was someone to actually think, oh, is there anything deeper than this? Is there anything that we can do to help her as well? Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, it it can be very difficult, especially when the specific causes of meltdowns or shutdowns aren't always apparent. It can be a build up over a long period of time. I wonder, Freya or Tyrone, do you have any hints or tips on, on dealing with those kind of situations? It's similar to my last point about my experience with working young people who, you know, have struggled with kind of meltdowns and shutdowns is there isn't a quick fix for it. Sometimes, you know, actually understanding what the other person might need at that time might be different to another young person. Sometimes it's space, sometimes it's comfort, sometimes it's safety. And for schools, they have a resource in terms of what the young person's there with them every day. And actually, a big thing that I always ask schools is to, you know, how do parents support them at that time? Because for some young people, you know, the parents might might know. And also asking young people, what they what do they want at that time? You know, when they are at that stage where they can kind of communicate that to you, you know, what's helpful, what's helpful for me to do? Could, do you want me to sit in the same room or do you want me to stand outside? It's... I always go back to communication <laughs> mainly and just having a space available if it, you know, if it's needed somewhere that's kind of quiet and calm and accessible. Yeah. And that's something I think schools need to have available. Yeah, just kind of following on from Tyrone. Um, I think, like you said, it's really, really important for the teachers to get to know that individual child. I think in situations like that, it's not really sort of a one-size-shoe-fits-all approach um you know there's so many different techniques so many strategies that are really really helpful but I think it can be so helpful for a young person to have a member of staff ask them what is it that you want me to do right now what is it that you need to really sort of comes from that young person rather than kind of presumptions or school or staff or other people doing things that could potentially escalate that situation or make it worse for the young person so I think that communication and just the school really getting to know that child and, and what it is that works for them when I experience meltdowns, I find it really difficult people asking me a lot of questions, especially people that don't know me, because then I'm struggling to think about this new person that's seeing me upset and it makes me anxious. So I find that asking questions before or later on is a lot better to kind of make that plan so you know what that person needs. Because I've had people ask me, what do you want me to do? Where do you want to go? And I'm like, I just want silence. I just want you to stop talking. And they can't express that. And that's when I go into nonverbal because then I'm just like, anything I say is going to make me feel worse because I'm feeling misunderstood. You all mentioned people at school not understanding or knowing really how to support you during shutdowns and meltdowns or, or when you're experiencing sensory overload, which also can be really frustrating on your part. And, and thank you for sharing that experience. But, you know, that miscommunication could lead to other miscommunications as well. It can just be this cycle and that could lead to really negative experience at school. I wonder if anyone had anything to share about any other experiences at school that were a little challenging due to like miscommunications. I found it difficult to make friends sometimes. I'd find that I thought people were really nice to me and I think we were friends and everything was fine. But then I found out that that person found me super annoying and would be talking about me behind my back. And I found it difficult as I didn't do anything wrong and I couldn't comprehend why someone would act one way but be thinking the opposite. 
Uh, this made it difficult for me to make more friends so I had a fear that they hated me because I've had that in the past. I had friends who I thought were my best friends but they would randomly bully me and say horrible things once or twice a day but I thought this was normal and then they'd carry on being super nice to me uh, but this was actually a, a manipulation and bullying but because I'd only ever really had mixed friendships um, I didn't realise this but it was actually kind of them taking their feelings out on me and then acting nice again so that I'd stay their friend. And I also felt like I couldn't turn to anyone else. I had no other groups to go to. Um, so then I was kind of stuck in the corner dealing with these people because I had no other option, really. But you have to be in school for most days and for eight hours every single day. And bullying is such an important issue because people may not want to go to school as they feel they will be picked on. But young people have no choice but to go to school. No young person should be terrified of having to go to school. The school should be putting in these things in places to protect that student. Actually, it makes sense for that young person to go on to feel low mood anxiety because they're having to go somewhere where they feel like they're not going to feel safe and they're going to feel like they're going to get tormented almost by other students. So that it should be a really important issue in schools and schools should be taking it as an upfront thing to sort that out because the child is also losing out on education they don't want to think about school because all they can think about when they think about school is the other students that might be picking on them thank you for sharing that maddie and, and that sounds really awful actually and i'm really sorry that you did have to experience that but it just you know it goes to show that that miscommunication can have a really negative impact on other parts of your lives and forming friendships at school and it's so important that we not only offer training to teachers at school but also students at school because people can be mean sometimes and and it might just be a miscommunication it might just be lack of education so it's really important to get that out there and i really appreciate you sharing that with us today thank you um zoe did you have anything to add in your experience i found communicating with my peers extremely challenging teasing and being blamed when things went wrong called lots of horrible names and i was laughed at when i couldn't do something that they could i'm so sorry to hear that again it's just awful experiences if i'm being completely honest and a testament you know to both of you that you're here and sharing your experience with other young people who might be going through a similar thing who might be able to relate or you know other young people who might just not understand and this might be the, the conversation that they needed to hear so thank you for sharing that i wonder tyrone or freya from working in schools in terms of bullying policy or anything from that perspective how are we tackling these issues and resolving them at school? It's a really difficult one, actually, I think, from our perspective, because unfortunately we do see a lot of it. We've got a lot of children referred to us who maybe are suffering with sort of anxiety and low mood. And then when we kind of get to know that young person or, or dig a little bit deeper, it does kind of come down to that they are being bullied in school. And that's kind of the root cause of what's making them feel like that. So from our perspective, we want to try and really tackle that so that hopefully it doesn't continue and we keep seeing young people suffering because of that so we really want to try and go in with a big sort of whole school approach tackling strategy to this in our team we've made bullying the whole theme for the year to try and do a lot of our sort of whole school approach events around that involving obviously you guys as well in terms of you know helping us to really get your experiences and messages across to teachers and, and students whether that be through teacher training assemblies things like that so we are trying to work throughout the year to try and tackle that and hopefully see a reduction in the effects that it's having and um yeah just to add on to what Freya said we, we hope to change the culture or at least shine a light on at what are some of these ongoing difficulties is when on some occasions things might just get highlighted by school as friendship issues where that term friendship issues comes up a lot and it's it's vague and actually you know comes up like that should be looked into further because that could be kind of 
a young person that might be being bullied or exploited or just perhaps not really in a good place considering actually the network of support they have around them so yeah so when things get highlighted as, as that it perhaps it's just you know underplaying the level of bullying that might be going on in that school or in that setting so great to hear the work you're doing to you know facilitate that change change the narrative as well and also picking up on subtleties that might have been missed in the past like friendship issues I'm glad you brought that up you know that reassurance to know that there is some change happening within schools towards tackling bullying and you know a lot of people have gone through it but hopefully it won't be the case that other young people will have to go through this any longer so it's good to hear that there's some change going on there and you're really involved with that and also really happy that you've involved some of our young people with that change as well it's so important to work collaboratively the next point we wanted to talk about was special interest. I wonder if Maddie, Zoe or Sam, if in your experience, if you've got any thoughts on that. My special interests usually change every two months or so, so it gets quite expensive. But almost all of them revolve around creative art. And my special interest helps keep me focused and happy. I've done mosaics, pottery, jewellery making, painting, drawing. It goes on and on. Um, but those help me a lot. And my most recent one is crystals. And they help me to keep focused, especially in the times where I wasn't in school. That's great. Thank you, Maddie, for sharing that. And it's so helpful to have special interests because it's a way to escape sometimes if you're having a challenging time at school as well. Zoe, did you want to kind of share your experience? My special interests are birds and dinosaurs. When I'm stressed, I impersonate bird calls or act like a dinosaur to make me feel strong and safe. My special interests provide comfort for me in stressful situations. For example, I write down all the bird and dinosaur names in lists as a coping mechanism for me when I get stressed. So great that you've mentioned how, you know, your special interests can often be a coping mechanism for you and a way to deal with some of the things that you've got going on. So thank you for highlighting that. I'm I'm sure many other young people can relate to that as well. And we're lucky that we have young people who have special interests because we learn so much from them. I know a lot more about dinosaurs than I did a couple of months ago, also about crystals. So that's great. I just wanted to say I'm really glad that with the the group we've got here, we've covered that special interests can change and that, yes, in some people, they might present as a a lifelong, I don't want to say obsession because that has negative connotations, but deep interest. And it's it's really interesting how society defines an autistic person as having that one continuous interest. But as we've seen here, it can change. And for me, mine also does change every couple of months. So I think it's it's really good that we, we highlighted that. I was just going to say a bit of a quote, don't let the low outweigh the highs. I find that a lot of the time I'll go through all these great things and I have one low and I feel like that's the only thing that's ever happened. When actually, if you actually look around and think, actually, what about all that good stuff that just happened? Like, let's just get up again and go back to the high stuff again. Knowing that being different is a strength. If everyone was the same, the world would be extremely boring. So they should be thankful that they have people like us to keep it interesting. And I love that you mentioned that quote, actually, because it's a really beautiful way to conclude everything we've been talking about today. Um, So thank you for including that, Maddie. And thank you all so much for being so open and sharing your experiences with us today. I know I've learned so much today and I'm sure you have too. Um, So thank you for that. And I I think we thought it was a good idea to just to conclude, go around and say the best thing about autism for you. Kim, did you want to go first? Yeah. So uh, again, I just like to say thank you so much to everyone who who spoke up today. And yeah, we've we've learned quite a lot. 
for me, I'm, I'm still getting used to my autism, I suppose, and still figuring out which parts are me and which parts are autism and which parts are coping mechanisms. But I'm really comfortable and happy with my special interests. I think growing up, I didn't quite realise that it was not as normal for everyone to be into books or, or whatever as I was. But I love that I can love things in a, in a really intense way that maybe not everyone else can experience. It makes me feel lucky to be able to love something as much as I do when I'm into something. That's such a great perspective to have as well, how you explained that. Thank you. And Sam? With or without the diagnosis, understanding autism helps you to deal with your struggles so that you are able to cope with help and support. In particular, focusing on detail is a special aspect for me in order to be who I am. I think, above all, we should be proud of our autism and not see it as a label that stigmatises us. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Sam, for sharing that. And Zoe, was there anything you wanted to add, the best thing about autism for you? For me, the best thing about autism is having a special interest. As I previously mentioned, I have a passion for birds and dinosaurs. And in my free time, I love researching about them and telling others about them. I also treat myself with a new dinosaur figure when I've achieved something or overcome something. For example, when I passed my GCSEs and completed my first bus journey by myself. Oh, that's amazing. And yeah, you absolutely deserve to treat yourself. And I love that you brought that up. Thank you, Zoe. And Maddie? I think one of my most favourite things about my autism and the kind of skills that it gives me is how everyone describes me as being determined. My determination to reach all of my goals and to prove the people that didn't believe in me wrong, to show people what I can really do and to keep pushing higher and higher to achieve goals I never thought were possible even a few months ago, never mind years ago. That's amazing. And I love how everyone has like a different thing that's like the best thing for them, which really rounds up what we were talking about today. I wonder if to conclude Frey and Tyrone, if you have any last remarks to add before we end this podcast today? I think from a practitioner's point of view, very similar in terms of the, the special interest, but how much I learn from that. And, you know, it's really nice in therapy to be able to use that to help them as well and support them through giving them something relatable to, to link with and I think every child with autism that I've met has just had a great sort of imagination and great way of, of sort of seeing the world so I think yeah from a practitioner's perspective that's always really really nice to to see. And for myself I work a lot with young people um, with ASCs and I love doing it because when I work with young people you know they're also kind of uniquely themselves I know that sounds a bit cheesy but actually when they really kind of show their individuality so much more kind of color and spark to it you know whether that be their special interest or the way that they like to talk or imagine things it always captures my interest and I always like to support them to kind of, kind of be themselves. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And I just wanted to say thank you to each one of you again for taking the time out to join us again and just giving a really broad and such an interesting, you know, insight into autism, especially for females and those assigned female at birth. It can be a topic that's often disregarded or not too much research or information out there for everyone. So I hope this is a good resource just for other young people or other teachers that want to support the students a bit better. So yeah, thank you everyone for listening. Hopefully you can join us next time at our next episode. But yeah, I hope this was helpful and take care. You've been listening to Camstalk, 
a podcast brought to you by the Luton and Bedford CAMS team and the Luton and Bedford Service User Participation Group. If you'd like to hear more from us, just go over to camstalk.com and subscribe. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any of the other platforms that you're using. Once you've subscribed, you'll get notification on your device every time we release a new episode. If you want to comment or share your views, you can contact us on Twitter using at camstalk, or you can send us an email using info at camstalk.com. One last thing before we go. Don't forget to use the hashtag camstalkpodcast whenever you comment on social media. We'll speak to you soon.